William Penn, one of the founders of the state of Pennsylvania and a devout Quaker, was quoted once as saying, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. Time is an unrelenting taskmaster, is it not? As children, time is of no concern. I am constantly dumbfounded at how little my children think about time. And it's usually when I'm thinking about nothing but time. As teenagers, time cannot pass fast enough as we want to get into adulthood. As early adults, time is full of potential. As older adults, time becomes the enemy against which we wage daily warfare, trying to regain moments of the past. And to hear most Americans speak, time is a master that never gives enough and always asks too much. Can I get an amen? But the reality is, is that time is a gift given by God that we can steward or we can waste. In our current culture and society, we have invented ways to save time on certain things so that we can waste time on other things. It is a confusing topic, this thing called time, isn't it? But time is so very important. As I said, it's a gift given to every human to steward, just like talents, just like treasure, just like relationships. And one of the things that we know for sure from the Word of God is that each of us have been given a set amount of time. set amount of time to steward, to use for God's glory, for the goodness of His creation. And no one person knows how much they've been given, and then comes death. It comes to us all. And after that, the judgment of how we've used that time. How we use our time is of eternal importance. can't even tell you the number of deathbeds I've sat next to where the number one thing they talk about is how they use their time. makes me convicted of how I use my time. But time is not important in the way we think of the word important. What we see as we look at this section of Deuteronomy that we are in um, it helps us understand the Hebrew calendar, and in the midst of that, it helps us understand that time is a tool that helps God's people keep our eyes focused on what he believes is a priority. And so this morning, uh, I would like to look at this truth of time and how God wants us to use it, which I believe will also draw us to examine how we use our own time as we look to today's sermon that I've titled this, A Holy Rhythm for a Holy People. A holy rhythm for a holy people. So let's look at our text uh, for today from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 through 8. And then we'll dive in. Deuteronomy 16.1, it says, Observe the month of Abib, or Aviv, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but as the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Well, the first thing that we look at this morning is this. I want to look at the holy purpose behind a holy rhythm. What is the point of all these festivals? And why is it that we as Christians don't practice the same festivals? These are important questions that a lot of Christians never ask. But I want to look at why we have this holy purpose behind a holy rhythm. Last week, Patrick did a great job of exposing the text in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that discussed the sabbatical year. Chapter 15 begins a section that is also attached to the majority of chapter 16 here, in which three major feasts are spoken of, and they are commanded for the Jews to observe. If nothing else, these three have to be observed, and they have to be 
uh, observed in a way where, at the very least, the men of the towns, the men of the families, they go to Jerusalem to practice them. Take a look at Deuteronomy 16, 16 there. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, before we think this is just a chauvinistic statement that only the men are important, remember this was in a day where you couldn't just pick up and go have somebody watch over your house with their ADT system, and then you go to Jerusalem and do your thing and fly back, right? This was a major, major issue. And so a lot of times, all that could be spared was one person, and so the leader of the home would go. Now, these three festivals are noted. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, which includes Passover. You can always think of those two together. The Feast of Weeks, or as we know it, Pentecost, which also includes first fruits. We'll talk about this more, so if you're lost already, don't worry. And the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, or Tents. Okay? Now, there are many other feasts within the Hebrew calendar. There's Hanukkah, the Feast of Purim. And so on, on that, uh, uh, these were all added, though, after these three were established. Because the core of the Hebrew identity were these three festivals, at which these men went from their cities, from their towns, to join in festival assemblies there in Jerusalem. So this morning, I want to look at that and think for a second just in general terms. Why is this calendar so important? And why is it core to the identity of the Jews? Well, I think there's a number of reasons for a holy rhythm. And this is a little bit topical. I'm not pulling this from the text, but I want to give these to you because I think they help explain 15 and 16 in a huge way. So you can write these down as I go through them here. The first reason for a holy rhythm, uh, and by holy rhythm, I mean a, a set calendar that's established and that the people go through, right? Uh, I know that this church, other than the people up here on stage, we all have a hard time with rhythm, don't we, right? That's a joke. You guys can laugh at yourselves, right? We have a hard time at rhythm. Remember, rhythm is something you do regularly, okay? It's a regular beat. And so when we talk about holy rhythms, we're talking about a regular holy schedule that is kept throughout the year, throughout the week, throughout the years of your life. Okay? So the first thing that's uh, a reason for the holy rhythm is that these things serve as a reminder. When we look at the Hebrew calendar, it's amazing how regular and how often God interjected reminders into the rhythm of, excuse me, of their life. In fact, the entire calendar is reset here uh, off of the month of Abib. Basically, because the Passover was set, and because the Passover was so important, he restarted the entire calendar. Uh, the first institution of the Passover that Julie read to us just a minute ago, it says this at the beginning, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, even though it's in the middle of the year for us, right? Uh, this would fall usually March or April. It's right around Easter, because Easter is always the Sunday after Passover. Even though it's in the middle of months, God resets the entire rhythm of their calendar around this most important thing. Let that sink in for a second. God says that the rhythm I want you to hold, the holy rhythm of the festivals, it needs to be reset off of this most important thing. So while the civil calendar of the Jews begins with what's called Rosh Hashanah, or literally head of the year, okay, and that happens in the fall for them in September or October, the festival calendar, the festival calendar begins with Passover in the month of Abib around March or April in our calendar. The whole calendar was reset to focus on these reminders. And then their daily, their weekly, their monthly, their yearly, and throughout their life, rhythm was filled with these reminders of who they were to be and who Yahweh was and is. Let me give you some examples. Every day, Jews would recite the Shema, or at least they were supposed to. They would recite the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. They'd recite this as part of the fulfillment of the command to teach their children throughout all parts of the day. Many Jews would do this four times a day. When was the last time you said the Lord's Prayer or the Great Shema? Each week, the Jews would celebrate the Sabbath or Shabbat from just before sunset on Friday to Saturday evening as a day of rest. But not rest in terms of what we think of as rest. There's this big push over the last five to ten years within the church of, man, the church really needs to get back to Sabbath. And what we preface it in is this idea of you need to get time for yourself. You need to relax. Guys, the Sabbath was not that. The Sabbath was purely step away from the toil of everyday life in order to invest in God's people and in God himself. 
They didn't zone out on Netflix or their favorite hobby as a day of rest. It was a day of resting from that usual toil, to focus on the holiness of their God and of themselves and to have a hope of the Messianic age. And this once-a-week day of resting in Yahweh was the core of the rhythm of the Jews. Look with me here at Leviticus 23 up on the screen. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And he's going to list them all. If you turn there to Leviticus 23, you can see this. He'll list them all. But before he does that, he sets the stake in the ground of the weekly Sabbath. He says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Before he ever stepped in the feast, God knew that giving him one day in seven was the stake in the ground for the rest of the rhythm. And then throughout the year, there were various festivals that occurred, such as the, the three described in Deuteronomy. These were very much revolving around the harvest cycle and the bringing in of God's provision. And as part of this, tithe was be, to be collected as a tribute to the king. You can go back and check out the teaching from a couple weeks ago on that. And then every three years, there was an additional tithe that was collected. And then, every seven years, there was this massive societal movement, this massive societal statement that Patrick taught us about from chapter 15 of God's justice and redemption in the Sabbath year where there was the release of debts and the release of slaves. And then once every 50 years, and remember, their lifespan wasn't as long back then as it is today, once every 50 years, so probably once in a lifetime, maybe twice if you were born right around the Jubilee year, you would have this 50th year celebration that was convened to point the Jews' eyes again to the future of God's hope and his messianic reign. But church, think with me for a second about the life of a Hebrew with regard to time. Daily, weekly, monthly, annually, every seven years, and then at least once, if not twice in the life of a Hebrew, the Jubilee, there would be reminders of who they were, who God was, and what his mission for them was to be. Reminders. Reminders are so needed in our busy lives, aren't they? How many of you need reminders on your phone? Raise your hand. All of us. What did they ever do before iPhones? Right? The older I get, the more I look back at myself in my younger years and realize I was just arrogant about it. You know, people would remind me of things and I'd say, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'll just remember it, right? But the older I get, the more things I have to remember, I am so thankful for reminders. The other day, I needed to remember to grab food out of the fridge uh, to bring to work. And I asked Kelly to put a sticky note on the front door. And my kids were so confused. Dad, why do you need a reminder? And I just kept saying to them, guys, I'm old. That's why my brain is going very fast. I'm thankful for that reminder. You know what? I didn't forget that I needed to get stuff out of the fridge. It was Kelly's gracious reminder that helped me step into what I needed to do. And it was God's gracious system of reminders to his people that they not forget who they were. And so a holy rhythm, a purposeful, a purposeful and enduring rhythm helps us as a reminder that we are God's holy people. Guys, how often do you forget that you're even a Christian? Oh, Jesus, yeah, i got to remember that. Well, second, this uh, festival cycle, this holy rhythm, it helped them to remember and give thanks for God's redeeming power. It helped them remember and give thanks for God's redeeming power. Look there at Deuteronomy 16.3. In 16.3 it says, You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread and the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Remember that Deuteronomy is taking place as a sermon or a series of sermons that Moses is giving to the Israelites as they stand on the border of the land of Canaan, going from the wilderness wanderings into Canaan. And they're on the precipice of connecting the past to the future. So the Jews were given these commands, uh, these commanded feasts as a way of both looking back at the past and looking forward to the future. To remember the past, we will see that each of these feasts, as we go through them in the rest of chapter 16, points back to the Lord's redemption and his covenant faithfulness to his people. But then also, they look forward, hoping in God's plan. They look forward. Third, they look forward, hoping in God's plan. Just as they stood on the border looking into the promised land that God had given them, they looked back at the wilderness, but they looked forward 
to the promised land. And they knew that this was merely a placeholder for the day that God would truly rule and reign on the earth, redeeming His creation for His glory. So they both looked back and looked forward with hope. And fourth, it helped them to redeem the time for the Lord. It helped them redeem the time for the Lord. How many of you use that phrase, redeem the time? Anybody? Ever? As Christians, we sometimes hear that thrown out, redeem the time. Many Near East scholars agree that the festivals that were put in place by the Jews were not completely new events. Most likely, at least a few of them were festivals that the Canaanites, the Egyptians, or the surrounding people were familiar with. But Yahweh called them to redeem them. For example, the Passover was most likely a tradition that was used by shepherds in the fields. And what they would do is they would sacrifice a lamb and use the blood to ward off evil demons from the rest of the flock. It would supposedly cause the demonic spirits to stay away from them and the flock. But for the Jews, it was something different. The blood of the Passover lamb was to be used as a purifying force. You see, for us as Christians, blood is purifying. It washes us clean. And so there is debate among linguists on what the word uh, Passover actually means and the Hebrew word behind it. There's a great deal of evidence that it does indeed mean to pass over. And so we say that the blood of the lambs that adorned the doors of the Israelites made the Lord pass over in his wrath. And that is correct. But turn with me really quickly to Exodus chapter 12. And I want to show you something else because it also has a second meaning that's just as important. Exodus 12, 7. Right there it tells them, this is the, the first command to the Jews, that they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. In other words, they took the hyssop, they dipped it in the blood, and then they kind of painted on either side of the door and on the top of the door the blood of this lamb. But then look at Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In this case, it's absolutely that God is passing over, but there's more detail that he gives us a little bit later. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. Interesting, that's the same thing. But look what it says next. And will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. In one sense, it is the Lord who passes over the house. In this way, the blood serves the same purpose as in the shepherd ritual. It keeps bad things at bay. But in another sense, it is actually this spiritual being known as the destroyer, someone who is subservient to Yahweh as God above gods. He is sent on behalf of Yahweh to do the actual work of the killing. Now this, for us as monotheists and as Christians, it breaks our brain because we have a hard time sitting in this very spiritual world of the Hebrews where there is Yahweh as the one and only God and the created beings of angels and demons that do some of his work. And so what the blood does in this sense is that it actually purifies the doorway of that home so that Yahweh and his spirit may stand in protection over that household and turn away the destructive spirits. The theological workbook of the Old Testament puts it this way, it is the destroyer who seeks to enter the house and the Lord rebuffs him, standing guard by the houses of his people. The blood is a sign of the Lord. And he says, when I see the blood, I will protect you. Jeffrey Tigay, in his commentary, says this, the Hebrew verb does not necessarily mean just to pass over. Most of the ancient translations and commentaries render the verb as the Lord spared, or the Lord had compassion, or the Lord protected. 
and the name of the sacrifice as protective sacrifice, referring to the protection of Israel during the final plague. We see this elevated throughout Scripture as well, that God did this work of protection. One place is in Hebrews 11.28. It says, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This new use of this ritual that shepherds had done as pagans was taken and redeemed to become a ritual infused with the idea of God's rescue and God's redemption. Cracks me up in my early Christianity, I found out that Christmas and Easter were originally pagan. <gasps> right? If you didn't know that, welcome to the club. Now you're just as shocked as I was, right? And at first, my response was, that's it, we're not celebrating anything. And people would ask me, are you becoming a Jehovah's Witness? What is happening? <laughs> right? I hate Christmas, it's pagan. And my good wife, who is loving and devoted, just kind of bared with me and slowly kind of crept through the years. And then I realized, wait a minute, but it's so orthodox to Christianity to celebrate Christmas and Easter. Why? Didn't they get it? Didn't they know this? No, they did know it. They absolutely knew these were pagan feasts. But you know what they did? They took them and they redeemed them. And they infused into them the beautiful picture of God's rescue. And that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath of a holy God passes over us. And we are not given over to the destroyer who rightly has the license to our lives because we are paired up with him in rebellion. Instead, God, by his son's blood, saves us and rescues us. These things were infused. And so the time was redeemed. And so we see that not only is it a reminder, not only does it help us remember, not only does it help us look forward, not only does it help us redeem the time, but also, fifthly, whoops, sorry, technical glitch. Fifthly, it helps us celebrate the goodness of the Lord. A holy rhythm helps us celebrate the goodness of the Lord. In each case of festival, there was a massive communal component Realize that men from every family in Israel would come to Jerusalem. In many cases, as with Jesus' own family coming to the temple, in the book of Luke, the entire family would come. Hopefully they wouldn't lose their kid like Mary and Joseph did Jesus. <laughs> and so people, together under the eyes of Yahweh in the temple where he placed his name, they would celebrate with one another. And guys, I guarantee you, they were not the chosen frozen. Brothers and sisters, to gather together as God's people is not some apathetic, forced get-together through gritted teeth. God desired for it to be a celebration of Him, of God, of His people, and the goodness and grace He has shown to us. Remember Deuteronomy 14, 24? We read it just the other day. Look, look again at what it says. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Now is God giving them cause to go and be debauchery, do debauchery and be drunk and get high? Not at all. But man, I know a whole lot of Christians that would read this and they'd take their pencil and they'd scribble out the strong drink. That can't be in there. Now, if you're a person that struggles with alcoholism, I want to be clear. You need to stay completely away from it because it's not obedient to Jesus. But the point I'm trying to make here is not go out and drink. What I'm trying to make is this. Does that look like a celebration? It's a party. And man, we so often as Christians, even here on Sunday morning, man, the, the worship team plays this awesome song and I look around and, and there are people that are like, yeah, I can't clap. And then Seth reminds us, no, it's okay, you can clap. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Guys, be celebrating Jesus. Be excited about, are you excited about Jesus? Are you excited about the fact that he has saved you from your sin? Are you excited about the fact that we have eternity to look forward to? See, often I think there are times for somberness, yes, but there's also times for celebration. And in our men's group this weekend, I'm going to throw Daniel under the bus here. Daniel brought up this great point. He said, man, sometimes we're so busy about just 
checking off the boxes and doing the things and making Sunday and making community group and this and that, that we forget that in the midst of all of it, we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves. And see, these things, Sunday and community group and membership meetings, these are the baseline. From there, we need to have room in our lives to go have coffee with one another, to go paddle boarding with one another. I won't do that because I'll fall off. <laughs> to go mountain biking with each other. I won't do that either because mountain bikes aren't made my size. But I'll be happy to record while you fall down the mountain, right? <laughs> In all these ways, we need to have fun with each other, guys. And I think, honestly, because I'm such a serious guy, oftentimes I give this opinion that fun is not supposed to be had by the Christians. And the reality is we serve a really amazing God who gives us his goodness. Let's infuse that into our lives. I think a holy rhythm helps us to do that. So again, do not hear me as saying, go be debauch debaucherous. There we go. Uh, don't hear me as saying it's okay to get drunk. Don't hear me as any of that because I will call you to account if I find out that you're doing that. But do realize that life as God's people is supposed to be enjoyable. Amen? All right. Sixth, I think that the reason for a holy rhythm is to live in peace and contentment. Just yesterday, I read an article that was noting a survey commissioned by H&R Block in which over 2,000 adults stated that they, on average, only have four and a half hours of free time a week. Four and a half hours of free time a week. And I think that speaks to most people. We're all so busy. How often do we say to one another, how's it going? Oh, good, I'm just busy. My question is, though, is what are we busy with? Another study found that the average American spends at least 12 hours a day on screens. So how are both of those things possible? TVs, phones, and computers. Most of our kids think that we are extremely busy because, man, we're not paying attention to them or getting on their level because we're too busy checking our Instagram account for the 400th time in the day. And if we could be a church, guys, that just puts our phones away for our kids, I think we'd have the greatest disciples in the world. We're busying ourselves to distract, to numb, to pacify. All the while, we're missing out on what will actually bring us joy. Good relationships in which we celebrate the goodness and joy of God's creation. We live in a culture that is enslaved to the fear of missing out. Hashtag FOMO. But we spend more time bemoaning what we don't have rather than enjoying what we do have. And guys, I'm right there with you. This is not me casting stones. I am right there with you. The other day, uh, if you don't know this, there's, there's this uh, small group of, of uh, some young girls that do ballet in here. Uh, we've got an awesome uh, ballet mother in Luray. And so she gets a chance to do that. If you're interested, go talk to Lorraine. Raise your hand there. There's Lorraine. And it's for, for the little girls in our, in our congregation. And so a few of them have started. They just started it up. And um, one, of the, one of my sons ran up to my office the other day because I was working. And he said, Dad, uh, they're about to do their dance. And I think all told, it's about a minute and a half that we go down and watch for. And uh, I said, oh, no, but I'm too busy. <laughs> and then I metaphorically slapped myself in the face and went, when is the, last time that my, when is the next time my daughter's going to be five and doing ballet and learning it for the first time? Oh, never. And so I put down my book and I went down for a minute and a half and watched my daughter do ballet. That is a giant gain for me if you know how much of a workaholic I am. So I'm right there with you. We all need to free up time in the holy rhythm to make sure we're giving to what's important. Study after study has shown that when we reduce choices, it reduces stress and anxiety. And the Lord's day is meant, this day is meant to set our week and give us a stake in the ground. Otherwise, every weekend is up for grabs and we either stress out about what we're going to do or we stress out that we didn't do enough. And so when we put a stake in the ground and we have a holy rhythm, it helps us to live in peace and contentment. Seventh, a holy rhythm helps us to proclaim the goodness of our God. As within any other religious group, this rhythm began to be part of the Jews' identity and the very fact that they observed it became something that spoke to the world around them of the prioritization of their lives and the place of their God in determining their days. And so living in a holy rhythm was core to the identity of the Jew. It helped them focus on Yahweh and maintain their identity, live in peace, proclaim the goodness of their God if they did it, if they observed it. It doesn't take much to realize that this idea of a holy rhythm is intentional and it is fruitful if done so. So why don't we keep it? Why don't we keep these festivals? This sounds like a really great idea. Well, if you want to, you can. In fact, I think it would be really cool one day to do a Passover Seder meal here at church to show you all the symbolism. 
But the reason that we don't need to do it, we don't focus on these festivals anymore, is because of this. And write down the next big point. The holy rhythm of the Christian now revolves around Christ. The holy rhythm of the Christian now revolves around Christ. But what I'll show you in a minute is that that doesn't mean we discard the idea of a holy rhythm in practicality. You see, each of these festivals pointed forward to Christ. It would be continuing to, it would be like this. It would be like if a newly married couple continued to plan for their wedding after they were married. Get my drift? It would be worthless. There'd be no point. Look again with me to Deuteronomy 16 there. Deuteronomy 16, verses 1 and 2. You shall, uh, sorry, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. There's a resetting again. And at the beginning of the teaching, Julie read to us from the first statement of the institution of the Passover feast, and it was to kick off this idea of unleavened bread. And it was in this feast, the Passover and the unleavened bread, that the lamb without blemish or spot was sacrificed and consumed together as a community so that its blood could be used to cover the doorposts of the home. Well, when John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he started baptizing people, and this guy named Yeshua of Nazareth started walking towards him one day, which he knew because it was his cousin, he looked at this person who he was very familiar with, but he said very clearly to everyone around him this, says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you greet your cousin that way, that's very odd, isn't it? But there was a reason. Because Jesus is the Passover Lamb. In admon admonishing the Corinthian church to live and act as God's set-apart and holy people, Paul references this idea. This is 1 Corinthians 5.7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, Jesus holds the place of Yahweh God's first and only Son. Even though He is God Himself, He holds this place as the divine Son. By His death on the cross, He willingly gave us His own blood so that we might plead His blood for our sins. We deserve the work of the destroyer to come into our lives to destroy everything about us. We deserve that because we've destroyed our own lives by our rebellion against the good and loving God. But Jesus stood in the way. He took on the work of the destroyer so that we might be spared. Because of his death, God's just and holy wrath passes over us. Because of his death, Jesus is victorious over the enemy. And no harm can befall you or I. The destroyer can have nothing to do with us. Even if everyone else around us is dying. Three days after his death and burial, in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus rose from the grave. Look with me there at verse 3 of De Deuteronomy 16. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread and the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. This unleavened bread was a bread of affliction. It spoke to the reminder that they were enslaved and needed God to rescue them. They had affliction in their enslavement. They needed to be redeemed from their affliction. And this bread was to have no yeast. Yeast is a picture of sin throughout the Word of God. And what this pictures is that Israel was to be a special people, a holy people, a people without sin, set apart for the mission of Yahweh. They were not able to accomplish that mission, were they? Because they, like you and I, were sinful and depraved at their core, always wanting to choose for themselves what is right. But in spite of that sinful rebellion, the good news of the Bible is that God sent His own Son, the Messiah Jesus, into this world as the bread from heaven. The bread that gives us life. The perfect unleavened bread. 
And this is what Jesus called himself in the Gospel of John. This is John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said in John 6.48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, He was able to redeem we who were slaves to sin in the midst of affliction and bring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by His glorious power. By giving us His Holy Spirit, He has made us a people that are to be set apart, different for His special purposes. Peter was speaking of this when he said in his first letter to the church, speaking to all of us in future generations, he said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear church, I find it so interesting that in today's Christian church, we accept the last piece of this so easily. I did not have mercy, and now I do. But the first part, we often cast aside. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Notice the possessive. You were not your own. You were bought at a price. Your rhythm, your time, your life is for His glory, not your own. Not my own. We see clearly that the holy rhythm of the Christian now revolves around Christ. In celebrating Christ's death and resurrection, we find our rhythm and we have our foundation. And so, since the first days of the church, we gather on this, the Lord's Day, to remember what God has done for you and for me. We gather together to celebrate the sacrifice of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? We celebrate the spotless Lamb who stood in the gap for you and me against the destroyer. Amen? The sacrifice that causes the wrath of a holy God to pass over us because it was poured out on Jesus in your place and mine. We celebrate and rejoice in the body of Christ that was given for you and for me as the bread that came down from heaven and allows us to step back into a reconciled relationship with the Father. You see, by the time of the patristic church, hundreds of years after Jesus, the early church fathers were creating feast after feast after feast to perform a similar function to the festivals of the Jews. And in some ways, I think we need to reclaim these feasts a bit. I think it's great when people practice Lent, when they celebrate some of the feasts. But when you look at the New Testament church, they had one marker. They had one feast that replaced all others. And it was one that was engaged each and every week. It was the Feast of Communion. Take a look here at Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 17-20 says this, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us pre prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Moving forward to verse 26, it says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In the pit midst of this Passover meal, at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus, being a devout and obedient Jew, was keeping these festivals with His disciples. And in the midst of it, He brings the disciples to an understanding of what these were always pointing towards from the day of Moses until Jesus. They were pointing to Him. They were pointing to His death and His resurrection, and His glory, and His kingdom. And so for the New Testament church, the rhythm of the New Testament church, the rhythm of their lives was based around this sacrament. 
and not only the administration of this sacrament, but the gathering of God's people that surrounded it. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like the first portion of the teaching today? What do you do with it? You remember. You're reminded. You look forward. You proclaim. It's within this sacrament that reminds us of the priority of worship. It's within this sacrament that we're helped to remember God's redemptive work in freeing us from our sin and the kingdom of darkness. Within this sacrament that we're helped to hope in the return of Jesus as King. It helps us redeem our weeks so that what so often seems like being caught in the rat race, this never-ending cycle of monotony, we're able to reset. It helps us celebrate God's goodness with God's people. And it helps us replace our worry and anxiety of the world with the peace that surpasses understanding. And it helps us proclaim who our King is. If we want to throw in Christmas and Easter into the mix and any other feasts, Praise God, so be it. But what we need to embrace is that the holy rhythm of the Christian now revolves around Christ. And we do that not once a year, not twice a year, but each and every week. Each and every week. And if you take vacation, praise God for vacations. Try and gather with God's people on that vacation. I can't even tell you how blessed Kelly and I were even though we were missing our church family here at Mission, to be with Hinson Baptist last Sunday, to watch a church baptize one of their sons, to watch a church preach the gospel, to watch a church love a brother who is dying of cancer. And I told them, man, I can bring that back to our church because you love one another and we hopefully love one another in the same way. It's important to gather with God's people. It's important to keep a holy rhythm based around the stake in the sand that God gave us of the weekly gathering of God's people. We're coming upon the time of the year when even non-believers are asked to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we move towards Palm Sunday and Good Friday, all of Holy Week, culminating in the Sunday of Christ's resurrection, I want to ask this question of us. Do we have a holy rhythm with Christ at the center? Do we have a holy rhythm with Christ at the center. In an age and culture where the gathering of God's people is seen as an add-on or a non-necessity, and in many cases as a nuisance or an irritation, I think it's important that we ask if we still hold to the principal truth that was modeled by God's command to observe the festal calendar. This principal truth of our rhythm and our stewardship of time, it matters to God. And the first most practical question we can ask is this. As with the Israelite rhythm, what do our days and our weeks look like? Do we spend time each day with the Lord, reminding ourselves of His place in our lives? Do we use simple tools like the Lord's Prayer or the Great Shema if we don't have an hour to devote to reading the Word? Do we use simple tools throughout the day to remind us to center our world on Christ throughout the day? If the Lord's Prayer becomes repetitive, stop doing it for a while. But otherwise, it's a fantastic tool to just repeat to yourself as you're going into your workday. Do we make it a priority each and every week to hold dear the place of the gathering of God's people in our schedule? I'm so blessed by so many of you. Man, this church, you guys are here every week. But please don't hear me as beating up on you because most of you, man, you get this already. And when you're not here, it's because you got sick kids or something that, that makes sense. But man, it's good to take a reminder and say, do we make it a priority? You see, we live in a consumeristic society that says we should decide if church is something we want to do based on how we feel the morning of. That's what a consumeristic society says. I don't know about you guys, but I'm the lead pastor. I never want to get out of bed on Sundays. And I love being here with you. Maybe that makes me lazy. I don't know. 
But if I were to leave it to my feelings, I probably would miss a Sunday or two. But as we discussed a couple weeks ago with stewarding our money, if we give God what is left over, rather than proactively planning out those stakes in the ground of what is His, then our schedule and our budget, they will be completely askew. But if we give God the first portion, our budget and our schedule is then set on what will hold us firmly planted in Christ. It's not legalism if you realize that it's actually God's grace to help you, just like that sticky note on the door was for me. In my arrogance as a, as a younger man, I would have said, that is not a good thing. But in my humility as an older man who's losing my memory, I say, praise God for that reminder, for that stake in the ground. At Mission, we do this not only through our Sunday gathering, but also through our community groups and our discipleship groups. And each of these is not the culmination of Christian community, but rather the base. It's from these very baseline meetings that we move out into further fellowship throughout the week. And it is from these meetings where we step into relationship that we can then have fun together and celebrate together and mourn together and care for one another throughout our weeks. Guys, we don't need more Bible studies. I know some of you have asked, like, do we have this Bible? We don't need any more. We have Sunday. We have community group. We have discipleship group. From there, what you need is you need to ask one another to go have fun and to grow in relationship. And if you're a person who's waiting for everyone else to ask you, then we're all going to stand around waiting for each other to ask each other. Time for you to go ask someone else. And I applaud those of you who are stepping into that and doing that. We've created groups specifically to make sure that we have this baseline of connection and this baseline of rhythm so that from there you can move out into more advanced things. For those of you that are in high school, for those of you that are in college, we've created groups at this church for you to come and be with your peers. We've created groups specifically for you so that you might have a place that you can get refocused on Christ. Do you make those gatherings a priority? Or do you have more important stuff to do? Dear brothers and sisters, I guarantee you that if you can't make these basic meetings a priority, then you will probably begin to watch time slip away. And you'll wonder why you're not more closely tied to the people around you. You'll wonder why you feel like an outsider. Dear family, friendships don't just suddenly appear out of nowhere. Those are only found in Disney movies and romantic comedies. True friendships take time and cultivation and care and conflict and resolution. That doesn't happen in a microwavable fashion. It happens when you make room for it in your schedule. And I am the chiefest of sinners. But we as a church, we can covenant together to do more. Not do more in the sense of adding things to our schedule, but do more in the sense of dropping things off our schedule to focus on what is important. These friendships develop when you have a rhythm centered on Christ and that then makes his people a priority. This rhythm should not and cannot simply stay within the community of the church, though. We also need to have, as part of our holy rhythm, connections to those outside the church. And it's by our rhythm that we are seen as a peculiar people. Guys, when people find out that we take time to gather and to care for one another, they are amazed and wonder why we do it. Ryan was telling us at our men's group on Saturday that one of his coworkers constantly wonders why Ryan is helping people all the time. And he's able to say it's because of Jesus. When we gather our non-believing neighbors together along with our church family, our neighbors go away wondering why are we are different. Throw a barbecue for your neighbors and invite people from church. People will be blown away. I'll give you another example. This last January, I was coaching the boys' basketball team. And we had a game during our membership meeting. I'm the coach and two of our players. And so I asked one of the other parents to step in and help, and they asked, what are you doing? What's more important than the game? These are eight-year-olds, by the way. And I was able to say, well, our church has a membership meeting, and it is important to me that we gather with them. Now, luckily, the coach who took over, he was very gracious, and he did it asking no questions. But other parents asked me, like, why would you do this? Because my church family is important, and we follow Jesus together. The world looks at that and wonders why we are so peculiar and why we don't align with the values of the world. 
why an eight-year-old's basketball game wouldn't be the most important thing on your calendar. And we can then explain that it is because we have a God that so loves us that He gave His only Son for us that we might be purchased back from our own rebellion against Him. And so our proper response is to lay down our lives for Him and for the people He holds dear. The very rhythm of our lives, whether you know it or not, speaks to the world that Jesus is King. Each week I go through an exercise where I track my time so I can see what was important to me that week. Kind of like doing a timesheet, even though I'm salaried for the church. In those weeks where I see sermon prep as the highest number, I think, oh, that's pretty good. That's, that's good. I, I'm pouring into the sermon. Those weeks where I see administrative duties and email, I think, what was I doing? What was my church paying me for? <laughs> email and administration. We've got other people to do administration. But dear church, those weeks where I see pastoral care as the highest thing, those are the weeks that are the best weeks. Because those are the weeks that I get to hang out with God's people and I get to rejoice with you and weep with you and encourage you. When we look at our rhythm, we can tell what is important to us. I wonder if it is time for some of us or maybe all of us in this room to look at our lives and say, what does my rhythm, my schedule speak to as the most important thing in my life? And I would ask us to simply apply what we've learned today by taking the time this week to do some reflection on where you spend your time and what your rhythm is all about. Is there room for Christ daily, weekly, monthly, yearly? Is there room for His people? Is there room for relationships outside the church in which you can evangelize the lost? And many of you I know are sitting here, if you're anything like me, you're thinking, okay, i got to add all these things into my schedule that I already do. And that's exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. Perhaps it's time we pull the plug on some things so that we can open up and create margin in our life and regain a holy rhythm for a holy people. And dear church, I'm right there with you. I start my internship for my counseling here very soon. And what this is causing me to do, along with my job as your pastor, along with my family who I love dearly, is really take stock in the seconds and the minutes that I fritter away rather than using them to love God and love His people. And I think we should all do the same. Amen? Amen.